Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to Libromania, a podcast for the book-obsessed featuring interviews with contemporary authors, discussions about key figures and movements, literary history, examinations of various genres and current events in the lit world, and celebrations of book nerddom. You know, bookstores, book design, book collections, and more. I'm David Kern. This is chapter 13, in which I chat with scholar and author Dr. Jessica Houghton Wilson about one of the world's most beloved authors, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and the besetting sin that dramatically affected his work and his life. Today, we're chatting about Dostoevsky's gambling problem. And it's these, these striking opposite desires, like attraction and repulsion, that I think Dostoevsky is showing is part of the human person, especially if you're um, of the mind that we are both capable of so much good and capable of so much evil. He's showing us that, and he's laying it bare. And I think people are uncomfortable with the possibility of both failure and success in that extreme Dostoevsky wants to go back to the good parts of medieval Russia and bring them up. What he would have wanted was this holistic vision, right? Um, the idea that the church was the center of everything and the Russian spirit, right? The noble Russian spirit that had not been influenced. Dostoevsky wanted to go back to what he thought was pure Russia. And that if they did, then Russia could save the world. I mean, if there's any problems with Dostoevsky biographically, I don't think it's his gambling. I think it's the fact that he literally thought Russia would save the world if everyone became Russian. Somewhere around midway through his absurdly thorough magisterial award-winning biography of Dostoevsky, Joseph Frank, a professor at Stanford and Princeton, recounts the story of the day that Anna, Dostoevsky's second wife, first met the author. She already knew about him. She was a fan, you might say, having read Crime and Punishment. And when she walked into his little apartment to begin working for him as a stenographer, she was shocked to realize that Dostoevsky's apartment looked almost exactly like the way he described Raskolnikov's apartment in Crime and Punishment. In that moment, Anna realized just how much of himself Dostoevsky poured into his novels. Not just in the sense that he worked very hard at them, but in the sense that he fashioned them, at least in some sense, in his own image. It can be a dangerous thing to read too much of an author's biography into his storytelling, but it's pretty clear that in Dostoevsky, we have an author who used his work to help process his own inner life, the anxieties and fears and neuroses that attended him every day. This, of course, is not unique to Dostoevsky, but it is fascinating, albeit sad at times, to see how that plays out in his decidedly unique, if not genius, novels. One of the things about which this great author writes with particular profundity is sin the ways it eats at us, the ways it moves us, the ways it alters us. And I believe he's able to write so profoundly about sin because he's able to both see his own sins and share them with us. He was, some might say, an open book. In particular, we know that during the 1860s, Dostoevsky was beset by what we would call today a gambling addiction. 
Burdened by many debts and other difficult challenges, he turned to roulette as a way of making ends meet. But eventually it became more than that. It became a constant temptation and a source of shame. And as Dr. Wilson explains in this episode, it was during this period that he was trying to finish a novel commissioned by one of his creditors, a way of forgiving his debts. That novel eventually became The Gambler, a first-person psychological portrait of a young man whose destructive addiction to the gambling tables of Europe mirrors its creator's own addiction. Thanks to Anna, that young woman I mentioned earlier, the one who entered his apartment and who eventually became his second wife, that book was turned in on deadline and his debts were paid. For a while. That besetting sin just didn't go away that easily. So I wanted to chat with Dr. Wilson, who's written two books on Dostoevsky, about this part of his life and how these struggles showed up and impacted his novels, which of course are some of the greatest novels ever written in any language. Dr. Wilson is the author of three books, including Giving the Devil His Due, Flannery O'Connor and the Brothers Karamazov, which came out in 2016, and Walker Percy, Fyodor Dostoevsky, and The Search for Influence from 2017. Currently, she is preparing Flannery O'Connor's unfinished novel, Why Did the Heathen Rage, for publication, and she has spoken at venues across the world, from high schools and universities to churches and embassies on topics ranging from the nature of suffering to the joy of poetry. So with that, let's get you over to my conversation with Dr. Wilson. Enjoy. Well, first of all, again, thank you for taking some time to do this. I've been wanting to talk about this conversation with someone who knows what they're talking about for a long time, so I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. So here's what I was thinking about as I was researching and reading and um, thinking about this, this subject. Like many authors you know, of his era, Dickens comes to mind. I mean, there's many of them. Dostoevsky wrote at least partly out of desperation. You know, He had to make ends meet and he had many debts. He had things like that that were... you know, Probably it felt like encroaching on his creativity at times. But it seems like he also kind of wrote into or about his desperation and his anxieties and his fears um, more than most people or at least as much as anybody that I can think of. So would you say that it's fair to say that his work was in some ways consumed with or by his own failures and flaws? And that, well, I'll just leave it at that. Whoa, that's a fantastic question. And I think as Americans, we are so scared of talking about failure that it's a really Mm -hmm. interesting lead-in to discuss why people either love or hate Dostoevsky and how comfortable hmm. they are with failure. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. That's a great point. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like you just made it. So I think that <laughs> <laughs> it might be one of those things because Dostoevsky really strikes people as this is their prophet, right? This is yeah. what they want to listen to and he speaks into their own life. And then other people just turn away from him as you know, dark and misanthropic, and and they really um, are turned off, perhaps by what you're talking about. That he he just lays all these faults before you, and so when you look at his novels, he's always having, especially if they're in first person, confession. Mm, you have yeah, some yeah. notes from the underground. He's confessing to us, right? Even though he says, "I'm not confessing," and I'm confessing, and I lied just now when I said I. <laughs> And then, um, of course, the gambler, he's also constantly saying, I confess, I confess. And it's these these striking opposite desires, like attraction and repulsion, that I think Dostoevsky is showing is part of the human person. Because especially if you're um, of the mind that we are both capable of so much good and capable of so much evil, he's showing us that. And he's laying it bare. And I think people are uncomfortable with the possibility of both failure and success in that extreme. Hmm. You you mentioned that he's constantly saying in The Gambler, I confess, I confess. And it seems to me like in some ways it's less of a, you know, sort of argument for confession or, you know, saying confession is necessary and all that as much as it is just him saying, I have to, I have to get this off my chest. Mm -hmm. His fiction in some ways becomes, you know, a way to, well, confess. <laughs> I mean, he's not really, it doesn't seem like he's really hiding behind it. You know, he's kind of just all out there in some ways. Right. No, he lays it bare. And even if you read Dostoevsky's biography um, from the beginning, when he was a kid, even there's accounts from his parents where they said he was kind of like that. He was really mm-hmm. intense and moody and um, <laughs> <laughs> almost like high strung and hot headed and just uh, wavering between these extremes, even 
even more maybe than other Russians would be. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I was, I was reading the uh, Frank biography. Well, I, I, part of it, I haven't read the whole thing. It's pretty long. Um, The Joseph Frank one, but he references in there, the diary or the, or the, I guess the autobiography of his second wife, Anna, and how, when she arrives um, to, to work with Dostoevsky, be his, was he a, was she a typist or something like that? Um, that yeah. she, the first thing she walked into his house and she thought, this looks just like Raskolnikov's house <laughs> in Kind of Punishment. And how it like, it both kind of repulsed her and, and was kind of exciting at the same time. So it's yeah. even interesting to think he described this murderer who he creates for Kind of Punishment in some ways is at least, at least partly based on himself or maybe it's some, maybe that wasn't even intentional. Do you think he was intentionally you know, trying to be confessional or it was something that just kind of came out of him and he couldn't, he couldn't help it. And whether he even recognized he was creating his own apartment or not, it just was because he couldn't, he couldn't avoid it. Dostoevsky's genius is that he does lay himself out there. And it, when you read letters, when he was writing the brothers Karamazov, he says something along the lines of all three brothers are me. I've pulled all three of them from myself. So he recognized that he had the potential to be an Ivan Karamazov or a Raskolnikov, right? He had the potential to kill someone for his ideas. Um, he also had the potential to be Alyosha, that that was there, right? That he could also be saved. Um, and even, I mean, the gambler says this too, right? I, I want to be born anew. I could be resurrected. Um, the possibilities were always within him for both. And so when he describes his apartment, you know, that is the dark, sad poor side of him. At one point, I think he was, when he was so poor, he was living just off tea. I mean, just like Raskolnikov, mm-hmm. kind of the, the crazy fever that um, you, you go under because you have no food and no sleep. And um, some of those things really were happening to Dostoevsky when he was at his poorest. Mm. Which I suppose in some ways leads into, into this, this, story of him having a gambling problem because you know it was certainly in some ways tied to a um a desperation about money as kind of a an anxiety about it Mm -hmm. do do you think do from from what you know was that something that he struggled with from a young age i think that's one of the problems that the dostoevsky estate always confronts is that people make so much about his gambling but his gambling was you know, always look up dates with me, but 1863 to 1871. And I'm sure okay. of the date that he stopped. Um, but mm. I think it was around 1863 when he started gambling. And yeah, that's actually, that's right. Because um, his wife and brother died 1864. I mean, very early into his gambling problem. And so it didn't begin as a problem, but all of a sudden when his wife and his brother died, he is in charge of his wife's son, it was not his son. So it was his stepson um, after only a few years of marriage. And then he was also in charge of his brother's family, hmm. right? And all of this, and he's not a famous novelist. And yeah. he, he just got out of prison. <laughs> right? He spent like four years in Siberia. And so he didn't, and his family wasn't wealthy. So he didn't inherit an estate. Um, he had been trained as an engineer and hated it. So he didn't have a livelihood from his schooling. And now he has all of these dependents and no way to pay for them. So he started gambling actually as a way to give back to other people, not really for himself to make money for himself. And, and then it just began to be an addiction. Do you think that people, you mentioned a lot of people are, I don't know if you said obsessed with it, but you know, a lot of people talk about it. Do you think that people are overly critical of him about it? Or do you- oh, Yes. I remember being in a class at Baylor University. I was doing theology class on Dostoevsky. So we were looking at Brothers mm-hmm. Karamazov for his theology, specifically his knowledge of God. And some of the theologians, so not literature scholars, pressed on why are we reading this guy that had such a monstrous sin in his life to try to understand what he knows of God, Hmm. which is a really perplexing question. And it's one that comes up all the time, (laughs) right? Like how much can you read and respect writers whose biography um, shows such blatant sins? Um, I think Dostoevsky, of course, would laugh at (laughs) such a statement because it really doesn't admit the sin in everyone's hearts, right? The responsibility yeah. we all have for one another for, for how many ways we can all go wrong. 
so where that kind of how that would happen next in that conversation i mean if you had the theologians asking that like was the general consensus among the students in agreement with the professors or was there no. pushback or what happened Praise God, Ralph C. Wood was in charge of the class and <laughs> was able to um, speak into that and basically hold a mirror up to the student asking the question and say, well, should we be listening to you? Uh, in, in what ways has your life been so exemplarily saintly? Yeah. Uh, we can talk to you about what you know about God. Um, is there really anyone we're going to be talking to who can say that their life was perfect and thus they have a perfect knowledge of, of the way the world is, of who God is, etc. When Alexi is trying to decide whether or not he's going to care more about people than he is going to care about gambling, he thinks in terms of gambling and says, what am I now? Zero. But what may I be tomorrow? Tomorrow I may rise from the dead and begin mm-hmm. to live anew. I may find the man in me who has been lost. And I think that that's a great way of understanding what Dostoevsky is doing that maybe puts a little bit more spiritual depth into the gambler as he really is trying to uncover what is the spiritual state of this person that's coming out negatively in gambling. And of course, that's probably the most confessional part of mm. the gambler. Mm. So, so you mentioned that, you know, people do have this, There, there is sort of a... Um, absorption with this idea in Dostoevsky and and you know he seemed pretty consumed with his flaws so in some ways it doesn't it's not surprising that we all are too (laughs) um him being such an open book you know leads us to have lots of information on on him and to be able to kind of you know look at all the things closely that he was naming about himself but do you do you think that that is kind of a I mean as a as a literary scholar as a reader as a lover of his work do you think that it's inappropriate to to spend a lot of time thinking about those things and trying to understand their impact on his work? Or do you think that that is... I mean, or I guess, do you think it's appropriate? (laughs) Those seem to be the two sides there. I'm probably of the way of reading in which you're always balancing the author's biography with the text itself with the reader's response, right? So all three of those things kind of form a triangle and you're Mm -hmm. judging the work by all three parts and keeping those things in tension. So... I'm not of the thought that you would just completely walk away from the biography. It's not going to provide any revelation to the material. And I don't think you can just read the stories by themselves um, to get the most out of it. I love reading everything else <laughs> that could go yeah. with it. Yeah. It's a fantastic synthesis too, for whatever is going on in our own hearts and lives that we're able to pay attention in a new way than perhaps even Dostoevsky intended, right? Reading it in the 21st century in America. And we're going to bring new things to light when we read the, the work. So I would want to look at his gambling. Um, and as you've mentioned, even his relationship, I mean, how did he produce some of the texts that he produced? I think the story of how he met his second wife and how he wrote The Gambler is just one of the most fascinating literary stories, um, even more than what he wrote down. <laughs> hmm. Can you can you talk about that for a little bit? I mean, I know that's not that's like a terrible interview question. Can you talk about this? But can you tell that? Can you tell that story for the audience? Well, it's, it's a fantastic story, and there's actually been a lot of movies made on it. I don't know that any of them are any good, but um, there was a Russian film that said uh, "26 Days in the Lives of Dostoevsky" or something like that. Because hmm. what happened was he was in such a debt with his creditors, and I mean, it was to the point where he's kind of jumping from place to place to avoid people finding him. And so he makes this horrible loan. The guy's name was something like Stolovsky. And this was just a shark that came after Dostoevsky and said, I'll give you, you know, 3,000. Um, I don't even remember which country he was in, but I'll give you 3,000. <laughs> and because uh, he was traveling all over Europe at this point. But yeah. I'll give you 3,000 if um, you give me the rights to your novels over the next like nine years. I mean, that's, that's huge. I mean, that would have been, yeah. That's a horrible deal to make. Yeah. It's but you got, you got to be really desperate to, to do that. Uh, it's the Jacob and Esau, right? Your birthright for a, a bowl of soup. Um, yeah. and he was that desperate. And the only way he could get out of it is if he turned an entire novel and the, the length was even stip, um, stipulated, turn the novel in by November 1st of 1866. Mm-hmm. And so it comes to October 4th of 1866 and Dostoevsky has not written a word of this novel. 
So he has 26 days to write an entire novel. And he had been working on The Idiot at, the, at that time and had to kind of put it to the side. And a friend of his hired a stenographer. So a stenographer was kind of a new thing. Um, and women working was definitely a new thing. I mean, it was, it was frowned upon. Um, when his stenographer arrived, her name was um, Anna Grigorievna, basically like the you know, the daughter of Greg. And um, she showed up, he expected her to smoke and kept offering her cigarettes. And she was so affronted, you know? Um, I think Frank tells the story really well. Like she was just so affronted that he would even think she was like low class for coming. She was that kind of girl. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she just kept, you know, putting him off and she helped him write for the next 26 days and they did it. I mean, she was it was, she was on a mission to do what was right because the shark was taking advantage of this brilliant man from her perspective. And she was yeah. 25 years younger than him and just in awe of the great artist. And um, so she sat there and diligently wrote this entire novel for him. They turned it in, I mean, hours before it was due and had it stamped by a police officer just to ensure its validity. So <laughs> it was a fantastic story. And that's it, it's funny too, because he's writing to get out of gambling debt and the book he chooses to write is about gambling. I mean, it's just hmm. fascinating. Hmm. So at this point, he is... How famous is he at this point? Because because Anna has read Crime and Punishment, as I mentioned, when she walked into the room at his apartment. She said, this looks just like Raskolnikov's. But how, how, just how famous is he at this point? I mean, he, he's got to be at least moderately successful for this guy to do take, yeah. you know, take on an agreement like that. But I mean, he's not you know Tolstoy, right? Well, he's... He's in conversation with people like Tolstoy and Turgenev. So he's definitely climbing the charts, I guess you could say. Okay. Uh, you know, he had become semi-famous 15 years before when he had published, I think it's 15 years, something like that, Poor Folk, um, which was his socialist novel that no one even reads anymore. But he was a young Is it man. good? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really like propaganda. So I prefer his um, post-Christian works where they're dealing with, you know, universal ideas rather yeah, yeah. Um, of the times. And so he was basically writing what amounts to propaganda for the Christian socialist movement. And then of course gets thrown into uh, prison, but um, that novel had already put him on the stage. I mean, people were already expecting things of him. And then when he came back from prison, he started, he written notes from the underground, which was in response to Chernyshevsky's what is to be done. And since those two novels kind of became two sides of an argument, everybody was reading them and talking about them. So you were either of the mind that we're going to be progressive and Russia is going to become more modern, more European, um, the ways of the world, so to speak. We're going to have our own crystal palace, kind of like London had just had, or we're going to be like Dostoevsky and to have this underground man who prizes freedom above all else. And um, so he'd already kind of made a name for himself and then crime and punishment. So he was, he was becoming famous, not in Europe, only in Russian circles. So St. Petersburg, Moscow, and he was making no money off of anything because he owed so much that as soon as the money came in, it belonged to other people. Hmm. So he wasn't making a lot of money. He was still living very poor, but he, people did know who he was hmm. at this point, or Russians did. Other Russians knew who he was. Hmm. So then Anna comes in, knowing who knowing who he is, having read *Crime and Punishment*. As I said, she helps him write this book, but then she sticks by him after that too. So they <laughs> and they turn in the book, and he proposes the next day, and, <laughs> and so he marries this girl that's you know twenty five years younger, which causes a lot of conflict from the get-go. But she makes a very smart decision and takes him around Europe for the next four years. So they spend four years traveling. It's it's half good in that they're getting almost an extended honeymoon, but it was also pretty negative because he was so addicted to gambling and he had much more access to it in places Mm -hmm. like Baden-Baden, right? In And because he had access, he was losing all their money as quickly as they made it. So... And he even, he pawned their wedding rings. He pawned the coats off their back. Um, he would pawn things like furniture, things that didn't, yeah. I mean, just anything he could get his hands on to keep gambling. So I guess, I guess the question that I imagine many listeners or people who are just kind of hearing about this for the first time are saying, well, why, why was he unable to 
control himself? I mean, I know that's, you know, that's a hard question for anybody in any kind of temp- temptation or sin or something that you're addicted to. I mean, but does, does he, do, is there, are there clues to exactly, um, what it is that he, he's, that seemed to be driving him or, um, kind of imprisoning him and keeping him from being able to control himself? Is it, is it just the fact, I mean, I don't, I'm, well, I don't want to overstate it, but is, I mean, it starts out as the fact that he owes all this money and he, you know, he's just, he's just kind of trapped. Right. But did it go beyond that? I mean, did it go beyond just negative circumstances? Well, I think there was added pressure after marrying Anna because she was young. So there was some jealousy there. He wanted to make sure to keep her and keep her happy. And he did love her so much. And then of course she becomes pregnant. So that becomes added pressure. I mean, mm-hmm. you can kind of imagine a parallel in poverty in America in which you're so poor and you can't find a way to get a job and your family needs to eat and then your wife gets pregnant. And so you apply for another credit card and then you have another one to pay off that credit card and then you play for another. And pretty soon you are so over your head in debt, you don't know what to do. And um, just the point of desperation, I think that's what was constantly confronting him. He would get ahead for a brief moment and then lose it again. And he talks about in The Gambler on almost like a a fantasy versus fate level, right? The moment where the roulette is spun and you don't know where it's going to land and it could your entire fortune and your entire dreams come true and the world will change the way that you start to feel. And then the split second in between also be your doom on the other side, right? I mean, it could be your wife will hate you and curse you forever. Your child will have nothing to eat and it will all be your fault. And so just the the self-loathing versus I will provide for everyone's dreams to come true. And those moments of in between became like a high. I mean, just the, the liminal space between will I win or will I lose he fed off just that. I mean, that he talks about that quite a bit in, in his diaries and letters and also in The Gambler, just that feeling of hanging in suspense between mm. those two goals. Yeah. In the Frank uh, biography, there's the chapter on The Gambler. He talks about how Dostoevsky kind of saw... He kind of thought there was a Russian instinct or susceptibility to that sort of thing. He even called it kind of a there's a poetic instinct, I think was how he put it, something like that. Um in in Russians that led them to to that sort of thing. So is that do you think when he writes a novel like The Gambler and you know some of his other his other novels as well, is he trying to in some ways not just sort of write a confessional for himself for his own sins, but in some way try to express or confess this communal Russian sin or this in this susceptibility? Is he trying to work that out, do you think? Well, and I think The Gambler, it's not one of his top five novels for a reason. Um, he, he does imitate seemingly the novels of Western Europe that were commenting on national personalities. I mean, you had people yeah. interacting with Russians and Englishmen and Frenchmen. And so he, he does that here, but he's almost stereotyping each group. But yeah. what it is yeah. on in when he tries to diagnose the Russian character, he's actually hitting on something that I think is more universal and Uh, talks about the possibility of, you know, utter doom or self-loathing on one side. And then on the other side, this idea sounds almost salvific, right? And it's associated with money. So it's associated with something worldly, but the way he describes it becomes supernatural. And I think the Russian poetic character that he discusses can be applied more generally to, um, aren't there things that we just put all of our hope and dreams and ambitions into and just, you know, throw the dice? I mean, aren't there ways that that happens in our lives? And I, I think that he, he hits on that idea a little bit with the gambler and takes it further in works like the idiot or, um, the brothers Karamazov or even demons in what ways, do we do this in other arenas other than at the gambling table, right? So if he's no longer going to play roulette, what does it mean to play roulette with your life? Mm-hmm. And the risk is, is damnation or salvation. Mm-hmm. So do you, 
you mentioned that this is something that he calls a Russian susceptibility, but you're saying he's touching on something more universal. Do you think that he's setting out to touch on something universal or he's setting out to touch on something Russian, but he manages to touch on something universal? Yeah, I think the latter. I mean, you also have to imagine him in that little apartment going up and down uh, the room. And I think Anna comments at one point, she, I, I love that book, her reminiscences. And she said mm-hmm. at one point she walked in and she remembers these Chinese vases and then a few days later, they were gone. So obviously, he had pawned them to go gamble. <laughs> so it became, you know, more and more poor over the 26 days that she was even there, that he was losing hope even as they're trying to put this novel together. So I don't think he's intentionally looking for the, you know, depths of reality in the yeah. gamble. Yeah. But I think what he strikes upon, he strikes upon truth, just trying to put his own soul out there and thinking it's Russian, and then by the end of the book, realizing, okay, what about this? Hmm. More than Russian, right? And so he creates other characters like like Prince Mishkin. Um, so. Do you, did, did he revise heavily, his books heavily, after they the manuscripts were finished? No, because they were, they came out in Chronicle, like, and they came oh, out. of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. So it wasn't the same process that you would have now. So when you said he's more like Dickens, in that sense, he would be because he was putting it out in pieces. Now they were censored heavily and that was unfortunate. Hmm. So. Do you, uh, man, that's, that'd be an interesting conversation to talk about whether someone like Dickens or Dostoevsky would, would have been better had they not been writing it that way and had, and had they had the opportunity to, to revise. I, that would be a fascinating conversation. I guess it would depend on what chapter or even what book you're talking about. But so, so do you see this gambling stuff showing up in the idiot and brothers K and some of the other works as well? Do you see that, that theme? I mean, not necessarily gambling itself as this plot point, but some of the same ideas that he's trying to write about in the gambler and, and some of the, the confessional nature of that. Do you see that as he goes on in his career? I think there are two ideas that, come from the gambler and begin to take hold in other works. The idea you mentioned where Russians were a combination of so many opposites at once, right? And he finds that a particularly Russian point. What Dostoevsky ends up doing in the later works is he makes those opposites into two separate characters. And so this becomes his doubling technique. I don't know if you're familiar with his doubling technique. Well, I am, but what, can you define that for, for the uh, people who are trying to decide whether or not they're going to read Dostoevsky? <laughs> so what he does is it's almost the Jekyll and Hyde, but he splits them into two characters. And so you have one character that's fully the Hyde and one character that's, that's fully the Jekyll, and then he watches them interact with one another. So they're kind of like the two sides of a coin, but you're getting to have a dialogue between those two parts. And I think this works well for readers. If there's one part of you that you hide or pretend is not there or don't appreciate, but watching it in two different characters and then seeing them dialogue, I think allows the reader to almost have a catharsis of having Mm. your inner self dialogue. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It definitely works well um, for getting, you know, getting at some of these, these contrasts. And then the other idea that's there is Nadriv, which um, Vladimir Dabakov says is an untranslatable word. And some, some translators use laceration. I think that's what um, Constant Scarnet uses. Um, but it's this idea that because of some self-loathing or some part of yourself that doesn't feel like it deserves good things, you actually strike out at those that you love and intentionally hurt them so that you can cause yourself pain. Hmm. Very strange idea, but you see it happen in the gambler. And then of course it takes on more momentum in his later works. And it wasn't just in the gambler. It was in notes from underground. This underground man does the same thing. Nadrive becomes kind of this sick drive uh, to not let oneself be happy in this life. Hmm. Right, um, just because you can. Does he recognize that as something that he he's doing in his own life, or is this sort of a more of a theoretical thing that he's then taking it, thinking about it in terms terms of his value in fiction? Right. Well, if you um, read Sigmund Freud on Dostoevsky, <laughs> <laughs> that that sounds like a quite an afternoon. <laughs> um, and of course, Freud makes up a bunch of stuff that doesn't fit with 
a biography like by Joseph Frank or something. But, yeah. um, but Freud's analysis would be that he had no idea what he was doing. I, I don't think that's true because I think most of what you can read in Dostoevsky, let's say, for example, his desire to kill off fathers in the text, right, mm. uh, has so much more to do with what he sees society doing, throwing off the authority of a godhead. And so I think Dostoevsky knows that his fiction is functioning on multiple levels and whatever is happening for him personally that has universal application, he's, he's then trying to expose and, and to illustrate that. So, hmm. yeah, I think it's very intentional. I think he knew what he was doing. And especially if you watch his novels from the early days, from Notes from the Underground to the Brothers Karamazov, I mean, the Brothers Karamazov just becomes a masterwork. It's, it's the greatest novel that has ever been written. Hmm. I want to go back to this doubling thing. There was something I wanted to ask you about that. Um, because in, in The Gambler, he's kind of divides people by like the Russians and then the, the Europeans, I guess, right? So there's, there's, they're French, right? The, there's a Frenchman and a French woman. And then there's a, an Englishman. And then that's right. The, yeah. Okay. And yeah. then on the other side, it seems like there's the Russians and it seems like in some ways they're, I don't know, and are they in opposition to each other? I mean, is that an example of his doubling? thing there at play, would you say? What happens in The Gambler is that the doubles are within the characters. So it's a little weird. He, he actually changes the technique later. Okay, okay, I see. Yeah, yeah. Within this, you, you have um, Alexi, right? He doesn't have any last name, I don't think. And Alexi says things all the time like, perhaps I will kill you, Paulina. No, <laughs> yeah. why would I say that? I love you. So these extremes happen just within Alexi and they even happen within Polina where she's like, I love you. I'm going to throw myself at your feet and then I hate you and I'm going to throw money in your face. Um, so, but later he kind of separates them out a little bit. So by the time you get to Brothers Karamazov, you have the two different women, right? Um, you have Grushinka and Katarina and they're completely opposite characters that are facing yeah. one another and showing two different ideals of, of what a woman is. Do you think when he does the way he does it in The Gambler, I mean, and I, you don't necessarily need to criticize one of the greatest writers of all time if you don't want to, but do you think that that's a little bit like it's not as it lacks the subtlety or is maybe, I don't know, what do people say, a little on the nose or something? <laughs> like, I think it actually lacks the spiritual dimension of his hmm. later work. Hmm. So, you know, when he was in Siberia, the only book he read was the New Testament. And one of the reasons he did so, I mean, besides the fact that that was what all, all that he had, was because he had just had a mock execution that he didn't know was a mock execution. They blindfolded him, said, you're going to die for your socialist beliefs, and then pulled the blindfold off and said, okay, never mind. Now you're just going to Siberia. And so it was, I mean, he saw his life flash before his eyes. And so he became um, enthralled with the New Testament and it drove most of his fiction except it doesn't drive this one, <laughs> you know? And so what drives the gambler is the need to pay off yeah. his debts and really for the sake of other people. I mean, he, I think it's all in his letters at that point saying things like what would Mikhail, his older brother, what would his wife do if Dostoevsky is taken to a creditor's prison? She would have nothing. Her four children would have nothing. And so there's just, um, He's, driving, he's driven by money for this novel. And so he, he writes almost like a, a Dickens or a Henry James type novel here, but with a Russian twist. Mm -hmm. And I think his later works, um, he was able to take his time. I mean, like I said, he put the idiot to the side to work on this book. And then he went yeah. back to what he really loved. So this is a book to pay off a debt. So it just doesn't have the same um, beauty, doesn't have the same big questions uh, in, in it that the other works do. Hmm. Yeah, the I didn't consciously think about it when I was reading, but it felt more rushed. Like if, I, if it, like he was being less precise, and so the problem for me is that I don't, I can't read it in Russian, so I don't know how much of it is a, you know, it's always for me, it's always a question of translation. Like, am I, am I feeling like this chapter was rushed, or is it just that I don't understand what the translator was doing? <laughs> you know, well, so writing it in twenty six days, I think that you were right to find. <laughs> He didn't have a plan. I mean, the moment that Anna got there, he just started talking and she was writing everything down. And of course he, you know, he made notes and went back and would revise things. I mean, she gave him the whole manuscript on October 29th. 
So his revision process was all of two days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He had to submit it. So there wasn't a lot of structuring ahead of time or um, creating different plot lines. It was just one person's perspective and moving forward in the story and seeing what happens. So it's significantly shorter than, say, Brothers K or, or even Crime and Punishment. And I think the idiot, yeah, the idiot as well. But so you mentioned that it had been arranged what the length was. Was it was he told he had to write a shorter one or was he, um, this was the minimum, right? So okay, okay, it was the minimum. Okay, it was the minimum that he had to meet in order to to pay this debt. And I don't remember what how it was stipulated in in pages at that point. But um, yes, this was what he had to do in order to pay off the debt. Now he has written short novels, so Poor Folk is short. Um, House of the Dead, Notes from the House of the Dead, which is right after he gets out of prison, was short. Um, he had published literary magazines, so he had done lots of short pieces, you know, The Dream of yeah. Birdie Man and, and things like that. Notes from the Underground is quite short. It's novella, right? Um, so he was writing those in between. And he writes The Eternal Husband, The Double. So he has lots of small ones. It's just when we think of Dostoevsky, we think of his like great novels, Crime yeah, and the idiot brothers K and those are kind of the big pieces um masterpieces that he produced well i know i can't keep you for too much longer so i've got a couple couple kind of concluding questions for you here um mm-hmm. what is your personal favorite dostoevsky novel like you can only read your i don't know you're stuck in siberia and you can only have one dostoevsky novel with you that, that's an easy question. I mean, for me, it's not even one Dostoevsky novel. If there's one work of literature, <laughs> okay, okay. it would be The Brothers Karamazov. Um, that is the most phenomenal piece of literature that has ever been written. Hmm. How many times have you read it? Oh, goodness me. Uh, I began reading it when I was an undergraduate for the first time. So... Is it like an annual? You try to read it every year? I mean, I guess you've probably studied it very closely just from an academic perspective as well. So. I do, right. I got to practice uh, translating with some help uh, when I was at University of Virginia. I studied Russian there for a little bit and got to practice translating some passages when I was working on my book on Dostoevsky. So, right. And I've written two books on Dostoevsky. Uh, so yeah. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, at least a dozen times. And I teach it annually. This year I taught notes from the underground and my students were so disappointed, but I was trying to teach a few other longer works. I thought, well, I'll just teach notes from the underground. And they were so disappointed. I don't think I'll ever do that again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, notes from the underground is a good book too. (laughs) It's fantastic. Of course. I mean, I love it. I love teaching it. But, um, but the brother Karamazov is just masterful. There's, it's one of those books that teaches you what words mean, right? Like you Mm -hmm. thought what love was not you read this book. You thought you knew what forgiveness meant. Not until you read this book. You thought you knew the hate in your own heart. Not until you read this book. So this book Mm. just teaches the human soul so much about itself. Mm. One of the questions we get a lot is about translation. And I'm curious who, you know, let's just say you're talking Brothers K, but for Dostoevsky in general, there's a couple, you know, particularly famous ones. You mentioned Constance Garnett, and then there's the uh, Larissa Volokonsky and... And what's oh shoot what's yeah Richard Pivier yeah um where where do you turn for a tra- like is do you have a go to for one of for either of those or is there someone else I think Pivier and Volokonsky are the great ones for classroom use and for first time access I don't think they're the greatest for scholarship and one of the reasons why it would just have to be with process so Volokonsky speaks French and Russian and Pivier speaks English and French. So Volokonsky translates from Russian into French, and then she, then he translates from French into English. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> some things are literally lost in translation. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would say for accessibility, they use contemporary English so well and so idiomatically that they get at the meaning of the text, and mm. people read it with ease. And you know, Dostoevsky's style can be rather difficult. I mean, he really was packing so many pieces into a sentence. And, yeah. so you know, to have this ease is probably preferable even, especially because most people that you're talking to are not going to be scholars. So go with your <laughs> Um Where would you start, speaking of starting, you know, if, if with Dostoevsky in general, I guess. I mean, would you start with Brothers K if someone's thinking, okay, I know I need to read Dostoevsky, but there's all these different books and some of them are very long. Yeah. They're often kind of dark. How do you not? Dark looking. 
not start with Brothers K. You know, if you end up starting with Notes from Underground, you're going to get turned off because <laughs> the whole experiment of the notes from the underground is you have a man that says the world is trying to control me. They're trying to either make me into data or they're trying to make me into an animal and I'm just going to protest and crawl underground into a hole. Right. So it's just a, it's a dark book in that sense. And then you don't get a full vision for Dostoevsky. It's kind of like people who read only Inferno when they read Dante's divine comedy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's from underground. Whereas you have to, the Brothers Karamazov is as difficult to read as Dante's Paradiso, but it has the most reward and the fullness of his vision. So you may just have to go more slowly than you do if you said, you know, you picked up a Flannery O'Connor short story and you could read it and it was accessible and easy. And I mean, not easy as far as like your emotional responses maybe, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you, can, you can get at what's happening there fairly quickly. And I don't think you can with Brothers K and that's okay. Hmm. It takes humility to even receive the vision that's there in the text, but it's a wonderful story. It's a detective story. It's, it's about murder and trying to solve the case. It's got love triangles. It's got uh, brothers in rivalry. It has um, questions about what is beautiful. Is there a God? And how do we run society? I mean, it's just a, a very full novel. So it's worthwhile, even if it takes you five years to read. Yeah, yeah, read a little bit at a time. And you like the PVR and Volokonsky translation of that as well. Again, for getting started, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you want to dig in more, um, maybe not, but that would so be is, is Garnett then just considered the, I don't know, if the more literal translation? No, no, actually, Garnett is not literal at all. I mean, that's okay. the problem. Garnett. So if you don't know the story of Constance Garnett, she discovered the Russians. And like I said, Dostoevsky wasn't famous in Europe because nobody was really translating him until Constance Garnett in the 1920s gets a hold of Dostoevsky, you know, 20, what is that? 40 years after he died. And she just loves Russian literature. So she begins translating everything, but you can't tell the difference between a Tolstoy novel and a Dostoevsky novel if you read Constance Garnett. So they're just Constance Garnett novels. British English. I mean, she, she tames everything with mm. him. They're not stylistically different. And, and part of the reason why is she thought he was just a bad stylist, which is not true. He just had his own style. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then was she saying that all the Russian, I mean, if, if a Tolstoy and a Dostoevsky novel are the same, is she just saying that the Russians were bad stylists in general? No, because Tolstoy is a Western European stylist. And so Tolstoy writes novels the way Frenchmen write novels. Ah, okay, okay. So, but don't so say she liked to... those Frenchmen. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. And so okay. did Turgenev. Turgenev would be more of the, um, the Frenchman type of novels, mm-hmm. right? He turned away from Russia and even like turned away his citizenship to Russia. Um, was just... no, oh, sorry. And I was just thinking, but Dostoevsky is a Russian novelist. Was he actively trying to not be that... Yes. Russian slash European novelist like Tolstoy was? Oh, yes. He did not love Europe the way that... Uh, well, especially Turgenev loved Europe. They, they got in all sorts of heated fights over, you know, love of country versus love of Europe. But Tolstoy would not necessarily say that he loved Europe, and yet he was imbibing Enlightenment ideas. Mm-hmm. He really yeah. was. Um, he thought he was a true Russian, but he wanted to change Russia so much the Dostoevsky would have said, you're not a true Russian. So was, was part of... Shoot, you got to go. But let me ask this last question. Was, uh, was Dostoevsky then... Was he trying to um, preserve... Like, was he trying to avoid the Enlightenment taking over Russia? Is that part of what his goal was? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, Dostoevsky wants to go back to the good parts of medieval Russia and bring them up. So the good parts meaning not serfdom. He was all about the serfs are the wise ones among us. They're the holy fools we haven't recognized. So he wouldn't have wanted to you know, reinstitute serfdom. But what he would have wanted was this holistic vision, right? Um, the idea that the church was the center of everything and um, that the Russian spirit, right? The noble Russian spirit that had not been influenced. Whereas when, when Peter came in and decided everything needed to be French. And then Catherine came in and decided all of us need to follow Voltaire. And I guess he wanted to go before both of them back to what he thought was pure Russia, right? Mm -hmm. And that if they did, 
then Russia could save the world. I mean, if there's any problems with Dostoevsky biographically, I don't think it's his gambling. I think it's the fact that he literally thought Russia would save the world if everyone became Russian. <laughs> hmm. Well, the right kind of Russians, of course. Right kind of Russians. Very <laughs> right. His tribe. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, I'll let you go. I know you got Well, thank you to Dr. Jessica Hooten Wilson for joining me for this conversation. As always, don't forget about all the great content here at the Close Reads Podcast Network. Not only can you listen to Libromania, but you can join us in all of our other podcasts, all of our other literary conversations. We have The Daily Poem, where we're bringing you one poem each weekday. Close Reads, our flagship show where you can join us as we discuss novels and other great works of literature. We've got The Plays the Thing, where we are reading Shakespeare one act at a time. We are currently reading through Macbeth, if you'd like to join us. And we have a number of other podcasts on the way coming soon. So be on the alert. Make sure you're subscribing. Uh, We would really appreciate it if you would rate and review uh, the shows. Please rate and review this show if you liked this episode. It's a great way to help us spread the word and to uh, let us know how we're doing. So for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and happy reading. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.